0: Fiddlesticks. Lee, there's no call for that kind of language on a podcast. This is only a test. This is all a test. This is only a test. Voluntary cooperation. Hello, and welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and with me today on my computer monitor are Elena Papianis and Lee Kula. This is part two of a two-part episode. On part one, we discussed how the immune system works, how vaccines work, and why, despite the sketchy history of pharmaceutical companies and a very small statistical risk of having a mild adverse reaction, we were all planning on getting the COVID-19 vaccine when it's available to us. On this episode, Lee and Elena are going to look back at the history of vaccine panics, and then look at now for an assessment of some of the claims and misconceptions that are currently circulating. So, Lee... Do you think that looking at history is always useful?
1: I think looking at the history is always useful with this kind of stuff. Maybe I'll I'll actually um, append my discussion about the media at the end of this history uh, talk, because I also want to talk about how people move from having no particular opinion about vaccines to becoming really quite uh, scared and angry about them. And I think the media really has an important role to play in that. And it's not just social media. I think social media is an important aspect to keep in mind here, specifically because of the way Nathan outlined how it gets used, the algorithms. But traditional news media has done a dreadful job as well, stoking fears and, and decontextualizing information that is much better <laughs> put into context. I'll leave that though for just a second, because I think, I think I've done this in the past, I think just looking at this historically really helps. It certainly helped me. Uh, Before I did this research, I knew about a doctor named Andrew Wakefield, who in 1998 published a study that later turned out to be fraudulent, actually fraud, not just a mistake, but full on uh, scientific fraud. But this study claimed that there was a link, a causal link, between the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine administered to children around the age of four and autism. Basically, to be very reductive about it, he claimed that the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine causes autism in some children. Now, that's, a, that's an incredibly scary claim. Elena and I are both parents, and you know, I, I've, had, I've had my kids in hospital, and it's just the scariest thing in the world. just is is, and it's so scary that it's it as a parent it's actually hard to think much more beyond that point you know once um once my kids safety is involved i kind of shut down all reasonable reasoning capacity and become defensive and angry
0: lee you mentioned that the wakefield study was fraudulent i think that Everyone would probably feel a lot better if we looked at a study that wasn't fraudulent and was far more robust. There was a study in Denmark spanning from 1999 to 2010 of over 650,000 children who had received the MMR vaccine to see if there was any correlation between that vaccine and the development of autism. This independent study found no increase in autism rates of vaccinated children as compared to unvaccinated children. As well, they found no clusters of autism diagnoses that corresponded to vaccination timetables. And it should be mentioned that this was the repeat of another similar study of 500,000 children that concluded in 2002 with the same results. So not only do we have evidence that Wakefield's study was flawed and fraudulent, but we also have good, strong studies that say the exact opposite conclusion that Wakefield's fraudulent study reported. Unfortunately, of course, Wakefield's fraudulent study received a lot more attention than these large, useful, accurate studies.
1: Andrew Wakefield's claims were very scary and very compelling. Now, for me, though, I thought that that's where it all started. I thought that the current vaccine scares, which, again, the coronavirus is is just the most recent example. There's been scares around the human Pavlova vaccine, the HPV vaccine, and many others.
2: Papaloma. you said pavlova that's something else <laughs> that's because i
1: always think i mix that up and i knew i was mixing it up but i never know which way because there's this lovely australian dessert made with uh, meringue and yes yeah. uh, I, I knew what
2: you meant but it's just kind of it was just a very entertaining uh, mistake like so it says
0: i'd like to share my pavlova with you then you should say yes and if they say i'd like to share my papaloma with you you
2: say no
1: well, but in this situation, I will not know which is which, just like before, because I always get those two concerns.
2: Just say HPV.
1: HPV, there we go. So there's, the, there's a worry about the HPV vaccine. But this has a history that is essentially as old as vaccines themselves. There are so many vaccine scares, and they are so similar to each other, that I'm actually now surprised that those people responsible for the rollout of the vaccine didn't take this into consideration. Because I would go as far as to say that there hasn't been a vaccine without a significant amount of public backlash based in terms uh, on fear on the one hand and personal autonomy on the other. I get to decide what I want to do with my body and nobody gets to tell me what happens to my children. So I can't go through all of it because there's just simply too much. A few things I will say, is it's uh, about as old as vaccines are. It doesn't seem to be restricted to any particular country. You can find examples in Nigeria, Kazakhstan, Japan, Denmark, the United States, uh, Great Britain, India, you know, across the globe. There isn't a country that I know that doesn't have a number of these historical examples. And it's at least uh, 150 years old. So the first scare that I looked at was uh, happened in Leicester, England. And in the 1850s, in 1852 in fact, there was a law in England to make the smallpox vaccine mandatory. And this was necessary because there were a lot of smallpox outbreaks that were occurring. And we've hit on this twice now, this social dimension that we need others to be vaccinated in order for us all to be safe. People weren't getting vaccinated and so they needed to put a law in place. And there was outcry, and there were people arrested because they were kind of quote-unquote conscientious objectors. My understanding is that's actually where the first use of that term comes from. It's with vaccine objectors. They were conscientious objectors on religious grounds. I was shocked that, that from, the eight, from 1850 to 1880s in Leicester, you had a very strong anti-vaccine movement. They actually had a demo that pulled more than 80,000 people. And this is in the late 1800s. Right after that, in other places in England and then in the United States, you have similar smallpox vaccination scares, and they run along the same themes, that people are worried about what is it that you're actually putting into my body, and or people are offended that you presume, you the state or the government presume to take control over their bodies.
2: What I found interesting, one of the things was that Amongst this anti-vaccination movement, it seemed to be more groups from the lower and middle classes, or like, no, lower and working classes, was it not, compared to what we tend to associate with the anti-vax movement of today and in North America, it being more like an upper class thing. Although, I must say, I just saw something the other day, just to bring in another point, that some groups... Uh, Rightfully so. People of color in the United States, for example, having, you know, still memories of things like the Tuskegee experiments are wary of the vaccine. And I feel like that's a very different reason to be wary.
0: Yeah, the, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment was an outrage and a disgusting abuse of trust and power. For anyone who isn't familiar, between 1932 and 1972, the U.S. Public Health Service conducted an experiment on African-American men in the town of Tuskegee, Alabama, in which government doctors claimed that these men would be given free health care, but what they were actually given was placebos. The men selected for the study all had syphilis, but rather than treat the disease, because there was an effective and easy cure for it by 1947, the doctors allowed the men to die horribly of it and to pass it along to their partners. The doctors let these men, and in some cases their partners as well, die a painful, avoidable death just so that the doctors could study the effects of syphilis on the human body. It was absolutely criminal.
1: It's a really complicated question, actually. So just, yes, you're right. Um, the article does mention that the Lester vaccine resistance tended to be more of a working class, poor thing, whereas today's anti-vaxxers are exemplified by, you know, people like Gwyneth Paltrow and Jim Carrey and a certain kind of uh, middle class that looks up to them fully into yoga and alternative medicine and, and things like that. But I think the question about class in relationship to these ideas is really complex. I think it's fully interesting and I'd love to explore it because, and this gives away the punchline a bit, but In my research, I would conclude that often vaccine resistance slash denial is not centrally about vaccines. And you notice this already in the websites that are dedicated to this topic. There are a few uh, websites by concerned parent groups that are are, are fundamentally about the dangers of vaccines but many of the anti-vaccine messaging comes in other websites, websites dedicated to other issues, be it anti-GMO or general, you know, wellness websites. And in that, you could, and I, of course, have not looked at all the websites where this kind of stuff comes up, but there could be a mixing of a whole bunch of issues, including things like historical race memories. By that, I mean, um, not like some kind of Jungian thing, obviously, but like, you know, like things that have happened in the United States by to black communities, a really devastating example of this, actually. And again, one where we have to concede some territory to those who are worried about vaccines was how the United States found Osama bin Laden. Now, that's kind of a surprising thing to say in an anti-vaccine or a vaccine podcast, but the way they did it was to fake A vaccine, like a kind of a Red Cross going from door to door, uh, we're going to distribute vaccines to you in order to find out where Osama bin Laden was living.
0: Yeah, and you know, the CIA did that. The CIA said that they were doing uh, hepatitis B vaccinations, but what they were actually doing was gathering genetic information. And at, at that point, it's like, oh, come on, CIA. For one thing, it did not help them find Osama bin Laden. For another thing, that gives people like a genuine good reason to be suspicious of any kind of large scale like medical endeavor. Because you could say, well, you know, the last time you said this, the CIA was gathering our genetic information. Like, come on, CIA.
1: Come on. When I saw that, I really like with Nathan, I threw my hands up. You know, I thought they just did more to delegitimate uh, organizations like Doctors Without Borders or the Red Cross than any other organization. Like, I mean, it's just outrageous. But okay, so this is all to Elena's point that I think vaccine resistance and the identities around it is a really complex and really fascinating topic. I, though, was just sort of trying to recount the history of vaccine scares, and and we've only gotten to, you know, 1902, when there was this uh, important case in the United States where there was a vaccine resistor who had to actually, who took it all the way to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court said, no, the state is right, they can force you to be vaccinated. But over and over, over the next hundred years, and again, this this is not a representative sample as such, but I've sort of broken it down into epochs. In the 1970s, there was a fear around the diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, which is the whooping cough. There was a worry around that vaccine uh, cluster. Again, the worry was about the fear and also uh, the indignity of having the state tell me what I have to do with my body. Then we get to the 90s when we have Andrew Wakefield stirring the pot with the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine controversy, suggesting that there's a link somehow to the onset of autism. In the 2000s, we have a lot of fear around the HPV vaccine. So it actually started in uh, Japan. Through social media, this fear spreads to Denmark goes to Colombia. I I took a a bit of a look at this, and it was really interesting. The government of Japan decides to do an HPV vaccine, I don't know what, what you would call it, like a mass action. Like we're going to get all the girls between the ages of like 11 and 18 or something like that vaccinated. A vaccine drive, that's what I'm looking to say. So they wanted to do this vaccine drive. Suddenly, reports emerge that that some girls are having an adverse reaction to this. And it includes headaches, jitters. It, 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 it goes even as far as difficulty walking. They get hospitalized. All these girls were in the same school. But then girls in another school, and we're talking about girls because they're the ones who get the HPV vaccine. Girls in another school start to exhibit these strange symptoms. In the first case, I think it happened two months after they got vaccinated. And the link was made. Maybe something is in these vaccines that's that's causing this adverse reaction in some girls. Now, Nathan did start with the fact that vaccines do have an adverse reaction in a very small set of the population, like one in a million or whatever the numbers happen to be. There's a, probably a range, you know, between one in 500,000 to one in a million might have some reaction. These reactions, though, you know, when you start getting like a cluster of 500 girls in the same community, that is that is statistically significant, as they say. Um, you know, it's a big deal. And so not the kind of thing you can just dismiss as, well, you know, this is just the kind of the accidents of modern medicine. The fear continues in Denmark, where the same kind of reactions are noted. And then in Colombia, that's the one I got more interested in, because... it it, it turns into kind of a full-blown panic in Colombia to the point where I watched a clip of the president um, giving an address to the media saying, look, we don't think that this has anything what's happening to these girls because the girls were exhibiting the same symptoms, uh, jitters, headaches, uh, difficulty walking in extreme cases. These, These symptoms would always clear up within a day or two or three. But it got parents were at the point where they're yanking kids out of school the president has to make an announcement, Um, the health minister goes to these communities to visit them, is met with outrage and, you know, people like throwing rocks at him and stuff. This now, actually, I just want to circle back at this point to Nathan's point about the media, because I sent a clip around to uh, Nathan and Lena about a news story that came out in this time about what was happening to these girls. And what I found so distressing was how the news story was very unclear in very important areas, like very specific points that were unclear. They said that, for example, in this news clip. So they start out with you know, hundreds of girls have been rushed to hospital, potentially because of poisoning from a vaccine. So of course, already, as a parent, I'm scared. If, if this is happening in my community, I'm scared. I don't care. If it's on the news and they're telling me this, I'm scared. Or it goes on. It says that um, this vaccine, which has also been released in Japan, also had caused a similar reaction in Japan, and they had to go so far as to pull the vaccine, which is in fact true. But they had to pull the vaccine in Japan because of public outcry, not because the symptoms that these girls were experiencing were related to the vaccine. There were studies, and, and with all of this, like going back to Leicester, and then the smallpox scares in the United States and in England, the same thing with the scares in the 70s, especially with the 90s and the measles, months and rubella. All of these claims are not true. All of these claims have been investigated. They've been investigated over and over and over again. And the symptoms that these girls were having was not related to the vaccine. But what I found so interesting in all of this is that this is just part of the narrative here. This is part of the vaccine rollout. Every time there's been a vaccine, there's been this fear. What is in it? I don't trust you guys. And you can't tell me what to do with my body. The fear then gets very irresponsibly reported on in a lot of cases, which makes it seem a lot more real than it is. And I think this goes a long way to explaining how it is that people... Get radicalized, and I think I use that term deliberately because when we're in, we're looking at something like why does somebody turn into a political radical who becomes, you know, is is willing to enact violence? Why does somebody become a neo-Nazi? Why does somebody become a Muslim fundamentalist terrorist? You know, how does that happen? And there's a path of radicalization, and you can watch how kids in this or that community, how it is that they first are exposed to these ideas, etc. And I found really interesting just playing this thought experiment. So I'm a parent, that is true, but now the thought experiment is, the rest of it's not true. I'm a, I'm a parent and I'm wondering, are vaccines safe? I'm mean, sure a lot of people are wondering that right now, given all the mixed messages out there. So, okay, I wonder, are vaccines safe? Now, what would I do under that circumstance? Well, I talk, among other things, to my friends. I could do some searches on the internet, maybe talk to my doctor. Now, depending on who your friends are, depending on the algorithms that are set up according to your search history, and depending even who your doctor is, and I have a pretty shocking example about that in just a second, you might find yourself going in a direction that will convince you that vaccines are dangerous. Because you will be exposed to things like this kind of news media that's, that's showing quite irresponsibly hundreds of girls, you know, in hospital beds with crying parents around them and saying, you know, quite off the cuff, this is because they got the vaccine." The first search that I did on Amazon, okay, I went onto to Amazon, I typed in "Vaccine." The very first book I got where "Anybody who tells you to take a vaccine is lying." It was the first book. And then what about our healthcare providers? I mean, look, a lot of them are doing really great work, but I gotta tell you that I, my mother had a video sent to her by a doctor, family doctor. I did, I did what we should definitely not do, which is I lost my cool and I kind of unloaded a whole bunch of facts onto my mother and I don't think it had a very positive effect at all. But this video is really shocking. It's a guy, okay, this is all German. Okay, so I'm just going to tell you basically what he says. And just If you don't speak German, you have to believe me. There's a guy named Avery Clemens, and, and he's, he's, he's there in a forest, and he's leaning on a tree. And he says, look, I'm a biologist. I've dedicated my life to researching the environmental impacts on human health. And I got to tell you, based on this research, I think the vaccine is dangerous because... Uh, It hasn't been tested enough. And it goes on, and apparently this video is making the rounds among my mom's friends. And they're all, of course, in that risk category that we're all staying at home to protect, right? I mean, it's not about so much my kids and me. It's about the 70-year-olds and 80-year-olds out there. I looked into who is this guy, Avery Clemens, biologist. Well, he's not a PhD. He doesn't have a PhD. He's not an actual researcher in the field. He got an MA from a university that focuses on biofuels and worked as a product manager for a grocery store. It was blatant misrepresentation, right? He's claiming to have a whole bunch of scientific insider knowledge based on, quote-unquote, being a biologist. But it was shocking that this video came from a GP and was being sent around. Now, To some extent, I'm just lucky that I have the friends and the algorithms and the GP that I have, because if I had a different set of those, I could easily see how a worried parent would resist the vaccines. And more and more doctors are reporting that they are actually delaying vaccines, despite the fact that they themselves believe the vaccines are necessary. They're agreeing with parents to delay the scheduled vaccines, because of the parents' concern and the doctors worry that if they don't listen to the parents, they're just going to go to a different, less responsible doctor. To just summarize this section very briefly, there has been essentially no vaccine that has come onto the market for the last 150 years that has not also been accompanied by a scare. Some of these have been really scary, some of them less so. But to me, that relativizes a lot the claims that are coming out in this one. And I'll just end this section quickly by reminding any listeners out there of the uh, suggestion that SARS and 3G networks were related. There was a conspiracy about 3G, there was a conspiracy about 4G, and then there was a conspiracy about 5G. So 3G was with respect to SARS, 4G with respect to swine flu, 5G with respect to corona.
0: That's amazing.
1: And again, it's just like, we're just seeing the, the next evolution of the same narrative. And once I saw that, once I saw these narratives just replaying themselves over and over and over again, for me, it took a lot of the sting out of it. Because I also reflect back now on smallpox. And I'm like, so I'm really happy we don't have smallpox. Like, you got to look that up. Like, what happens to people with these kinds of diseases? It's really... It's really horrible. And all the other claims have not been substantiated, right? The fears around the diphtheria vaccine or the HPV vaccine or the MMR vaccine, there's, you know, we've had now between 20 and 150 years of data on, on the claims, and not one of them has turned out to be real. Giving the obvious caveat, as Nathan said to begin with, that there are risks and people do get hurt. It's just statistically very small. Also, small comfort to anybody who did get
0: hurt. So that's a historical context. So that brings us up to the modern context. So Elena, what sort of stuff is going on right now?
2: Right, so I'm going to go through some claims of um, anti-vaxxers or the movement, and then also look at some sort of common strategies that they use in a way that, again, you'll see a lot of parallels lead between some of the things you talked about in these previous examples of these scares as well. They tend to be a mix of real legitimate concerns, which we've mentioned a bunch of, misinformation, disinformation, uh, distrust of big pharma or those in power, fears around um, biological research, which is also valid as well, and things like just a lack of understanding about scientific, about scientific data or how vaccines work or how the body works. So it's, it's a real combination that you'll see amongst uh, these claims. So I'm gonna go through uh, maybe a few little ones first, or at least kind of minor ones before I get to some sort of bigger strategies that these um, arguments tend to use. So one is just simply that they argue that the infant immune system can't handle so many vaccines. And you've, you've heard this kind of rhetoric, even Trump himself saying, oh, it's too much all at once. You've got to spread, you know, I spread it out for my kids and all this. Mm-hmm. Um, but babies can theoretically handle approximately, apparently, 10,000 vaccines up to that at a time based on the number of antibodies they have. And even if you were giving um, babies all 14 vaccines that they get in their schedule at once, it would only use up a bit more than 0.1% of their immune capacity. And in reality, these, their cells are always replenishing anyway, so they might, their capacity might even be greater than that. We also have to consider when we're talking about previous examples of vaccines versus what we have today, vaccines are way more efficient now, um, way more studied than they have been in the past. And I'll, get to, I'll show some examples of that in a little bit too. So they're, they're not as hard on babies' bodies and immune systems as they would have been previously. Another argument that you see or another claim is that our own body's natural immunity is better than what it can acquire from a vaccine. Now, of course it's true that you have stronger immunity to something if you've had it before, like Nathan was saying, you don't keep passing the same cold back and forth between family members, but the risks are so great um, if you do get it. So for example, for the measles, if you get it, there's a one in 500 chance of death, versus the risk of having an adverse reaction to a vaccine, which is less than one in a million. So, one in 500 chance of death versus one in a million of um, of actually having some sort of adverse reaction. In my mind, kind of relates to the anti-vax, the portion of the anti-vax movement that is in this upper or middle class. Echelon where it it seems to be more about a kind of purity discussion as well, or this idea of natural being better, which you'll see in like the Gwyneth Paltrow kind of things, right? Um, This idea that nature is inherently good in some way. And so then natural immunity is just like the best you can actually get. Another point I mentioned earlier was this idea of vaccines containing unsafe toxins, things like formaldehyde, mercury, aluminum, Now, those things are only used in very trace amounts in these vaccines. And in fact, our own systems, our own body produces a bunch of formaldehyde on its own. Um, But as I mentioned before, the vaccines have them for a good reason. Like in the case of the oral polio vaccine, where formaldehyde was needed to kill the live portion of the virus and through mismanufacturing, it did not do that. I came across uh, this one article that was Covering this anti-vax pamphlet from 1885 during the smallpox epidemic uh, that you were talking about before, Lee, this one was in Montreal. It was published by this leading doctor who was an anti-vaxxer named Dr. Alexander M. Ross. And he was circulating it in direct opposition to public health official attempts at, at like a public health drive for vaccinations in the same way that we have some individuals coming out against COVID vaccines today, uh, Ross painted himself. He was kind of like the hero in this story, this solo kind of renegade speaking up and out against, you know, power and, and, and um, other, the scientific community, but, Funnily enough, um, the major newspapers soon found out that he himself had recently been vaccinated during the epidemic, which they um, very happily reported on over and over and over again. But anyways, looking at this pamphlet, you can see some of the same strategies that you see in today's um, movement. For example, minimizing the threat. I have lost track of the number of times I have seen or heard the phrase, COVID's no worse than the flu right? And in the same way, back when smallpox, uh, during this epidemic, he was saying the same thing, he was quick to dismiss the threat of smallpox, even though uh, between, I think the mortality rate was between 30 and 40%. It was really, really contagious. But it was very common for anti-vaxxers to claim that it was only a minor threat to the population, that it wasn't that bad, that it was no worse than anything else. There's also the common strategy to claim that vaccines cause illness or don't work or both. The anti-vaccinationists, which this article is describing them as, of the past, they claimed that a vaccination then for smallpox would have caused Anything from syphilis to typhoid to tuberculosis to cholera to quote unquote blood poisoning. Uh, And these claims were always groundless and their risks were highly exaggerated, which again we see today when we've been talking about this idea of sort of communicating the risk of things versus um, how upsetting they are. There were some cases where people got a secondary disease back then but that was largely because of poor hygienic practices. So some physicians might've used like arm to arm vaccination. So literally like someone's arms vaccinated and then they use the same instrument in a whole other line of people uh, rather than new ones, which clearly we know we've come a long way since since then.
1: The past Um, is
2: gross. The past is so gross. It's so gross. And I mean, vaccinations now, it is such a sanitized thing. Like it's a little syringe that goes in you. I can't remember which one I was looking up, but it was literally like, they would just kind of, they would cut your arm and then just put a bunch of junk in it, right? Like, and so you could get secondary infections. <laughs> like obviously it looked terrible. You could see people with infections. It was a terrifying experience, I'm sure too. But we've come so far from that, that it's, it's not a concern in the same way. So obviously we have better, not only, um, like we have better regulations and sanitize, sanitization around our practices now for vaccines. Lee do you want to say something?
1: Yeah, I just wanted to say about um, when you were t- recounting how people were making arguments that smallpox, you know, maybe not really that bad. And to our ears, I think that sounds really shocking. And I think that is really instructive of one of the things that's going on in the background is how familiar is the danger. And we tend to dramatically underestimate the danger when we are used to it. So smallpox is not the kind of thing that exists in my life. And as far as I know, was eradicated about 100 years ago or something. And so we've lived in a world without smallpox. The thought of smallpox is terrifying to me because I've done a Google search on it. And it's really it's a shocking disease. And it's funny then for me to hear you say that there were people a hundred years ago who were like, look, don't worry about it. And really, I think that speaks to this question of familiarity.
2: There are people in the ICU, like ICUs are overrun right now because there's so many cases or like I know someone whose dad was like on a ventilator and basically in an induced coma for like over 50 days. And that was like, and woke up and didn't, didn't even understand the trauma that had happened to him and had to process it. So like there's such a range of people's experience with COVID that in some ways it sometimes it ends up backfiring on people because they don't see it as a big threat.
1: When you were saying that, I think you you make a great point, Elena. And when you were saying that, it reminds me a little bit about the problem we have with, smokers which is that the smokers you see are still alive you don't see the ones who are dead so the impression is that smoking can't really be that bad because you know look at that old guy over there smoking he's like what he's like 80 i mean you know so
0: classic example of survivor bias
1: i think the the, what uh, it it speaks uh, i think elena's onto something really interesting about this notion of how do we perceive risk you know, so it's like, okay, so some guy got COVID. So in, in my family, in my extended family, uh, we've had two people with COVID, and they both recovered really fast, you know. And it, it's then the sense is that, wow, maybe it's not so bad, you know. It's kind of my experience. Like, I mean, luckily, nobody in my immediate family, certainly not myself, has had COVID. So my experience would suggest if I were to limit it, not to the data, but to like the actual people who got sick in my life, oh, well, you know, not such a big deal. So I think, Elena, you're right about how is risk being perceived, especially when we're, we're not relying on the data, but on these kind of anecdotal experiences.
2: So a few more claims. So uh, another claim is that vaccines can infect you with the, de- with the actual disease that it's trying to prevent, um, which as Nathan um, covered at the beginning, obviously people can have uh, mild symptoms for the most part, but it's really just your body's immune system's um, immune system responding to the vaccine, not a sign of the actual disease itself. We've also covered some cases like the oral polio vaccine in the US, um, where it did infect people, that, but that was such a rare mistake that happened. Another one that this will probably be very familiar to both of you is a strategy uh, that they use is to declare vaccination as part of a larger conspiracy which we can see it being tied, like you said, Lee, like 3G, 4G, now it's 5G with with COVID vaccine, right? Um, Back then during the smallpox uh, epidemic and this anti-vaxxer movement, they were adamant to blame the press and to blame the medical profession in provoking fears over the infection, uh, that they would be trying to gain money by doing so. Now you'll you'll hear some of that today like oh how there's so much money in it. We've already talked about how big pharma obviously are not necessarily to be trusted. They are in it for the money, but it's it's not like big pharma you can't talk about it as this big monolith. Like there are researchers, well-meaning researchers everywhere around the globe working tirelessly to try and, you know, actually Combat suffering of these people that are that are getting COVID, right? So um, it's not you can't really treat it as this as this uh, huge terrible beast when there's so much more to it.
1: I just want to say that because they're in it for the money, it's why I trust them.
2: Right? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point.
1: I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm so sorry, but only just to bring it back to the airline thing. I am deathly afraid of airplanes. But the one thing that keeps me getting on the airplane is knowing that it would be a public relations nightmare for that bloody thing to come crashing down. So airlines do have some financial interest in keeping those things flying. And I place my faith in their greed.
2: Uh, So maybe a final thing to a final strategy is using alternative authorities to try or that actually legitimize their arguments so it, in a way it's like an active confirmation bias so uh, they will find these sort of standout quote-unquote experts like you mentioned that you your mom received lee in the video who claim to be some and some of them might have some um, legitimate degrees behind them but they'll sort of stand out as these ex quote unquote experts who really just support the anti-vaxxer narrative. So for example, um, there's Dell Bigtree is one right now with uh, in terms of the anti-vaxxer movement, JFK Jr. we've seen, there's multiple others. And they're seen as these kind of like whistleblowers who have come out against you know against the community, which again, When you think about the sheer numbers of scientists around the world and experts around the world to have one person or like a handful of people come out speaking against them. I still tend to trust the global community of experts over the handful that come out and say something counter to the scientific community.
0: And again, because you just don't trust large groups of people to be able to keep a secret very well.
2: Exactly. It's going to get out. There's going to be a huge wave, a huge movement. It's not going to be, you know, just one guy standing alone. Mm.
1: There is, though, an interesting study, the details I'm not going to bore you with, but, but it, 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 it's very interesting in that it seems to suggest that when there is disagreement among experts, that that creates a sense of uncertainty in the public. And so it's actually, so the study that I'm referring to gives them an article where seven out of eight experts say one thing, and the audience audience is split, and the other get one where uh, four experts say one thing, and four experts say something else. Now, when seven out of eight experts seem to uh, agree on stuff, people are like, yeah, you know, they're experts, they probably know what they're doing. But when there seems to be a split in expert opinion, people are like, experts don't know what they're doing. You know, I mean, if they think it's this dangerous, and the other people think it's twice as dangerous, who's to say it's not 100 times more dangerous? Like they have no idea. So actually, expert disagreement tends to significantly, or excuse me, can significantly impact the public's perception of risk. So so just to your point, Elena, the fact that, you know, not everybody is as discerning maybe as we are sometimes about our sources. Um, the fact that, you know, this biologist or this, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow or whoever, who might appear to me, I mean, God, she's got a TV show, she must know something, right? They also appear as experts, and now we've got a disagreement, and, you know, they probably all don't know what they're talking about, so I'm just going to do what I want.
2: And I think what also factors into this is the kind of the changing landscape of something when it's new, right? Um, like the amount of information we, we've we got about COVID that has shifted over time. If you don't understand that that's really how the scientific process works, that, you know, there's a, there's a guiding theory until it's, then once it's disproven, it changes to the better theory that's like closer to the truth. Never claiming full truth, right? Because it's, they can't. But when people see that, well, now this news, now it's telling me this, now it's telling me this, it breeds even more distress because they're like, well, can't they get their stuff together? Like, can they just tell me what to believe and what I should be doing or not doing?
0: Which brings up kind of an interesting point, Elena. How did you feel while you were researching this?
2: On the one hand, I felt, it was frustrating because I know the facts, I was researching the facts, and uh, common common misunderstandings about vaccinations and things like that. But then to contrast that with things I'm seeing on social media that misunderstand the science or misrepresent the risk was very hard to see because it is so dangerous to be promoting things like anti-vaccination in a time when it's really our best hope right now because things are so bad, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, the virus, of course, isn't the only thing that, that's spreading all around the world. As we always talk about, bad information also spreads. And if anything, bad information spreads faster and it sort of it spreads ahead of the virus and then encourages the spread of the virus once we have this bad information.
1: I, I wanted to, because I know we're wrapping up now, I was actually going to ask Elena uh, because... Elena, you've just published an article on how to talk to people about conspiracies. I was wondering if there was anything that you had gotten out of that that would be applicable right now, because of course, we are having, I'm having these conversations with a number of people in my life, and I'm doing a terrible job of convincing anybody. In fact, when they talk to me, I'm pretty sure they go away more convinced that Vaccines are dangerous, and that they should stay away, and that oh, anybody who supports them, you know, is a dupe of the system. Are there some tips for how to do this uh, in a way that is maybe more successful at at conveying what's at stake?
0: Or should we just tell people where to get Elena's article?
1: Then yeah, you, you can read everything Elena has written. Just so it's,
2: that... well, there's not that much out there yet, but um. It is on our Instagram, uh, which is at The Uncover Up. We have a little link tree thing where you can find the article posted there. The fact that right off the bat, we started this episode talking about the very legitimate fears around vaccines. I think that's a good place to start because it builds some common ground with people who do have fears that may be out of whack with the reality and the statistics, but still they are legitimate in some sense. So trying to have that kind of compassionate or empathetic base is helpful. And then instead of, I, I can feel like, the tendency can, can be to almost go on the attack with statistics or numbers or, or, or something, but um, it's better to, I find, sit back and listen and ask questions. And try and, you know, see what their understanding is and see what they're basing their beliefs on um, and trying not to be judgmental about it so that it is an actual conversation rather than an argument. There's more, but you have to read the article to get the rest.